Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. I want to invite you to take your Bible and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to be today. You know, here's the, uh, maybe the understatement of the day. Parenting is hard. Am I right? It's just difficult, right? There are challenges that come along the way. And I remember when our oldest, when he was first born in the first couple of weeks, it was just like, I don't know if I can do this, right? I, I don't know if I have the patience. I don't know if I have the wisdom. I, there were all these questions. And, and here's the challenge. There's a season when you think, gosh, if, if they can just get to where they can tell me what they need or what they want, life will get so much easier, Right? And then they get there and you think, gosh, if they would just stop talking, life would get so much easier, right? And, and then you think, gosh, if they can get older and get a little bit more responsibility, life will get easier, right? And then you think, gosh, if they can just hit those teen years where they can start to be responsible. Yeah, right. No, I'm just kidding, students, right? But, but there, there is this, this just constant journey through parenthood that brings its challenges, but one of those is especially when your kids hit kind of those preteen ages and teenagers and their friends are starting to participate in things and, 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 and they want to be a part of them. And as a parent, sometimes that can put you in a tough place. For instance, they come to you and say, hey, mom, dad, my friends are going to do this. Can I go? And you know right away that the answer is going to be no. Even though all their friends are going to do it, you know as a parent that you're going to have to tell your child that they cannot participate in something that all of their friends are going to participate in. And so when you tell them no, there is a natural response. And what is that response? What do they ask? Why? And you say, well, child, it's because those parents don't love their children, right? <laughs> Maybe you don't say that. Maybe you just say, well, Here's the thing, they do love their children, but they're terrible parents and they're ignorant of the long-term consequences on their child. And decades from now, they are going to regret their decision to let their child to be involved in this activity, right? That doesn't always go over real well, right? But here's the deal, those moments come along the way. Sometimes it's with kids, sometimes it's with, uh, with grandkids, sometimes it can even be with um, maybe with an employee, right? There, there's challenging moments where, where you have to step in and say no to somebody when that's not what they want to hear. And it's not just that that's not what they want to hear, they see other people being involved in it. And today, as we're in this journey of 1 Corinthians, we're going to find the Apostle Paul in a place with his, not children, but his brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're trying to navigate the Christian life of how to live out their faith, specifically what Christian freedom looks like in a secular culture. And today, Paul is going to have to step in and he's going to have to tell them to stop participating in something that the entire community sees as absolutely normal. And it's going to be a challenging moment. We're going to see today, the Apostle Paul is going to exhort them to flee from idols 
And he's going to have to help them understand that in their idol worship, that it is not necessarily coming from a proactive decision to want to go into worship, but because of something they're participating in. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 14, go through verse 22. I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What, I'm say, what am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons or... Are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge at this moment that this is your authoritative, inspired, eternal word that speaks to us at the soul level. And God, we need to hear it today. Spirit of God, would you have free reign in this place to convict us where we need to be convicted, to encourage us where we need to encourage us, to strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. Spirit of God, would you speak in this moment? Would you clear obstacles from this room? Would you allow us to dive fully into what it is that you have for us in this moment? In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. amen. If you haven't been with us, we have been in a long journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. And to remind you, this is Paul writing to Christians in Corinth, the city of Corinth. And we see in the first part of the book, he's addressing issues that he's heard about. But then beginning in chapter 7, we see that he makes a turn. And in that turn, he's writing to them about things that they have actually written to Paul about things that they're addressing. Some people believe they're asking him questions. Some believe that they're giving him answers and Paul's raising questions to what they believe that they know. And in chapter eight through 10, if you've been with us, you know that Paul is addressing this issue in the church of how they are dealing with eating food that has been offered to idols. Remember in chapter eight, he said, listen, if it is going to cause my weaker brother to stumble, I'll refrain from all food, right? And we've gone on this journey of seeing what Paul has to say about freedom in Christ and freedom from the Old Testament ceremonial law and civil law and how we navigate these moments in our life where it calls for us to navigate who Christ would call us to be. Now, as a reminder for us, in that culture, this idea of food that was offered to idols was a significant portion of their culture. It was a significant portion of the actual meat that they would eat in a variety of different ways. Some ways would be that they would go to these temples of these idols and that they would celebrate in these feasts together. This would be a, a social activity. It would be, a, in a sense, a political activity that you would go and celebrate in this feast that was given to the honor of this idol. So that's one way this, this food would be eaten. Another way would possibly be a, a kind of a civic uh, meal, a get-together. And it wouldn't necessarily be for the intentional uh, worship of this idol, but it would take place in the temple in that setting. 
And then we also see that the food that was given out at these mills, whatever was left over or wasn't used for those, that it would be given to the butcher and that butcher would take that and sell that meat into the community. So even a lot of the meat that would be eating in, eaten in your home would be meat that would have been offered to some idol there in Corinth or in whatever city you found yourself at this time. And so next week, Next week, we're going to see that Paul is going to clearly communicate that they are not to eat food that they know has been sacrificed to an idol. He's he's just going to say it outright. Listen, if you know that it's been sacrificed to an idol, if you know that with full assurance, don't eat it. But today, he's going to show them the why. He's going to show them that this participating in this food that has been offered to idols, there is something deeper. There is something more significant that is happening. And in fact, we're going to discover in the text that he's going to say here that you, when you eat this meat that has been offered to this idol, that you know has been offered to an idol, you actually are participating in idolatry yourself. You may not think so. You may want to express some type of Christian freedom that you have in this moment, but Paul says, don't be mistaken. And so we see in verse 14, this is the main idea of our sermon today. And at the same time, it is our one and only point today. Can you say amen? Amen. I'm sorry, it's going to be a long point. All right, but he says in verse 14, so then my dear friends flee from idolatry. So that's the main idea today. Flee from idolatry. The first and only point today is flee from idolatry. It's the only imperative that he's going to give us in this section. And so we can see that he's going to connect these dots between their action in eating this food that they know has been offered to an idol, I believe specifically in some meal, some feast that would have been given for the honor of this idol. So you have these Christians that are showing up because it's the social place to be. It's where everyone wants to be. It's what they've been doing their whole life before they came to faith in Christ. They don't see it as a big deal. They're wanting to claim their Christian liberty. And Paul says, when you go and participate in this social activity that is the celebration feast to this idol, although you may not bow down in worship, when you eat this sacrificed food to an idol, you are participating in idolatry. And so today he's going to begin with this imperative to the church in Corinth. And it's an imperative to us today to flee idolatry. Now, we understand idolatry to be that which is worshiping something that is greater than that which is greatest, which is God. We know that as God began this covenant relationship with his people Israel, he was very clear with them that they were to have no idols, no graven images, nothing that would be placed over God or to replace the worship of God. And we see over and over and over again in the history of Israel, they fail this time and time again. Even in the deliverance out of Egypt, right? And you're thinking, gosh, if I would have experienced walking through the Red Sea as it had been parted, I wouldn't ascend another day in my life because I would know that God is real. I would know that God had delivered me. And the Israelites would say to you, yeah, right. Because we see that for them, from the very beginning of their deliverance, what were they doing? They were building a golden calf and they were ascribing worship to this golden calf. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 6, 
It was clear. It said, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or the waters under the earth. Do not bow down and worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children of the third and fourth generations, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commands. So there was clarity that was given with God's people from the very beginning that there were to be no idols, no graven images, nothing that would place the highest form of worship in your life other than the Lord. So there's a history. We see a history of idolatry throughout the scriptures. We also recognize the context of idolatry at this moment. Right At this moment, there were temples. I've shared this with you the last couple of weeks, but there were temples to false gods that would have filled the city of Corinth. They would have filled it. And that time, there, there would be all these different gods to all these different items, right? The rain god, the sex god, the, uh, the, 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 the harvest god. There'd be all these different gods. And for most people, a majority of people, you would worship whatever god you wanted to because you would see it as being advantageous to you. Well, yeah, I'm going to worship that God because we need rain, so I'm going to worship him. And there would just be, it, it, it's almost like there was no loyalty, there was no commitment. It was just a desire for the outcome and not a heart that would say, who truly desires or deserves to be worshipped. And so what we see here is that a part of this worship and these, um, these temples to these false gods, that what we see here is that Paul considers these idol feasts and the eating of this idol food to be idolatry, regardless of how the Corinthians may have rationalized it or justified um, their behavior. So, so he's, he's pressing in on what they're doing in the context of Corinth with all these temples to all these gods and how they're navigating it. And look at what the instruction that he gives to them in verse 14. He says to what? To flee. To get out of there. Now, I believe there's a connection here to verse 13. If you were here last week and Evan McFarland helped walk us through remembering a warning from the Old Testament and God's people. And how we should heed that warning ourselves. But if you remember at the end there in verse 13, there was an encouragement, right? That God is faithful and he will provide a way out of temptation that you may be able to bear. That's a great promise for us, right? There's no temptation that will overcome us. None. And it's almost as if Paul says here, listen, God will provide a way out, but you got to do something about it. It's not just enough that God will provide a way out. You got to go. Makes me think of uh, National Treasure. Isn't that a great movie? You guys remember National Treasure? Great movie, right? And it was like, it was almost like every one of the movies was the same, right? They get, they get down to the treasure and then they're stuck. Oh gosh, what are we going to do? And oh, there's a way out. They have just happened to find a way out. Wouldn't that have been a great way for the movie to end? They find the treasure, but they can't get out and they die. <laughs> Maybe not. It's not enough just to know the way out. You got to go, right? And so Paul here is saying, listen, the Lord's faithful. He's going to give you a way out, but you have to flee. The word usage there is like an army who is making their way through kind of two mountains, like a, a gorge through the mountains. And any army that's going to make their way between two mountains, they know they are sitting ducks for those that have the high ground. And so in that moment, they're telling the military, the, the, the commanders are telling them, go, 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 go. We have to get through this because we are sitting ducks. That's the context of the word that he uses here. He says, flee, get out of there. 
In fact, if you go back to chapter 6 and verse 13, I'm sorry, in verse 18. Remember in chapter 6, he was discussing sexual immorality and how we were bought with a price and we were to honor God with our bodies. And you remember in verse 18, he told him to what? To flee sexual immorality. So as the, the Corinth church is writing to Paul about issues, we know that he, they're writing to him about this issue of sexuality and what it looks like for a believer. And in that context, he tells him to flee. You need to flee a lifestyle that is dishonoring to the Lord in that area. And at the same time, in all this discussion he's been having about this food that's offered to idols, he says to them, flee. You need to flee. What about us today? You say, well, Michael, I'm pretty confident that the food that I go eat at Texas Roadhouse or Walk-Ons or Catfish Charlie's or wherever it is you're going to go eat today, you're not real concerned if that meat's been offered to idols, right? We understand we live in a culture today where there's not a different temple to a different God on every corner in our community. We understand today that our culture is not one to embrace all these different gods for all these different areas of our life just so we can be, uh, think of it as advantageous to the outcome for our lives. But here's the reality that although there may not be graven images to which we bow, there are still idols in our lives. And he calls us to flee it, to recognize it, and to flee it. So what does that look like? Well, Paul here is going to help them understand. Because you see, at this moment where Paul has just said to them, flee, flee, um, these idols. Flee from idolatry. This is the moment where the child hears the parents say, you can't go. And now they're going to respond with, why? Why can't I? For these people in Corinth, again, this is what they've done their whole life. To go to these mills, this is the place to be. He's thinking here of the, of the person in Corinth who has that fear of missing out. That's where everyone's going to be. I need to be there. People are going to think less of me if I'm not there. I need to be there. Paul understands that. And so proactively, what we're going to see all the way down to verse 22 is that he's going to give us seven rhetorical questions to persuade them that although they are free in Christ, participating in these meals that honor false idols is wrong. We're going to see two reasons that he does this. All right. The first reason is this, is to understand there's a deeper intimacy at stake. There is a deeper intimacy at stake. Look at me in verse 16 through 18. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. Since all of us share in one bread, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. So again, he's communicating to them that when you, are eating in, when you are eating this food that has been offered to idols, you are participating, knowingly, unknowingly, no matter how much you want to justify it, you are participating in idolatry. And the first reason that he's going to show them that this is the case is he is going to use the Lord's Supper as an example. Now, you may not be familiar with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, we see it was a moment that Jesus took with his closest followers the night before he, or the night that he was betrayed. And what we see in there is that they had gathered together to celebrate the Passover. This was a feast going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible where God had delivered his people from Israel. And there was an instruction that was given to God's people to continually observe this Passover meal. 
is a reminder that on that night that God's people, that if they were to, to sacrifice a lamb and to take that blood and to place it over the mantle of their house, that they would be passed over by the consequences of God's judgment that was coming. And so every year they would celebrate this Passover as this reminder of how God had been faithful and how God had delivered them. But on this night of the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper, Jesus took this Passover meal and shows us that that Passover was but, was but, I'm sorry, was but a mere picture. It was a shadow of what the true substance was. And the true substance is it not a lamb, but the lamb of God that Jesus himself would sacrifice himself and that his blood would be poured out. And in the pouring out of his blood, that our sin could be covered and that we could be rescued from the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. And so now we, as the body of Christ, we see not just, I believe, the command from scripture, but throughout history, that the church continually observes the Lord's Supper as a reminder to us of Christ's sacrifice for us. I say it every time we do the Lord's Supper, that when we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. When we take of the Lord's Supper together, it reminds us of what Christ did for us, that he came as a suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom for many. And at the same time, when you take of the bread and the cup, you are proclaiming that that suffering servant is going to come back as a reigning king. Amen? Amen. And so here Paul is going to go to the Lord's Supper, something that they would have been absolutely familiar with. And he's going to explain to them that when you take the Lord's Supper, and hear me, this is applicable today because guess what we're going to do at the end of our time together? Take the Lord's Supper. He says, when you take the Lord's Supper, it is not a ritual religious box that you are checking off. It is not an activity that you simply do to try to get back on good side, God's good side. There is a deeper intimacy that is taking place when brothers and sisters in Christ come to the Lord's table and remember his sacrifice and proclaim his coming again. Look at me again in verse 16. He says the cup of blessing. This would have been the third cup in the Passover meal, but it's the cup that, that we recognize as the cup of which Jesus gave thanks and said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, which has been poured out for you. This cup of blessing that we bless, look what he says, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Now, some people want to take this idea and say that when we take the Lord's Supper, when we drink the juice or the wine, when we drink it, that we are actually drinking the actual blood of Christ and that when we take the bread, we are actually eating the actual flesh of Christ. That's not what this text is alluding to here, but it is alluding to this intimacy. Notice what he says here. He says, is it not sharing? The word here is koinonia. Some of you have heard that word before, right? It is a fellowship. It is a joint partnership with. There, there is an intimacy level that happens there. And he says when we do it, it is a vertical. Hear that. It is a vertical intimacy that is happening with Christ when we take the Lord's Supper together. It is more than just what happens on the surface level. There's an intimacy there of worship. This is where we get the word communion. We are, we are communing with Christ as we remember his sacrifice and proclaim his coming again. One commentator, he says this, speaking of the Lord's Supper, but also what Paul is referring to and what they're doing in Corinth with these uh, eating this food that has been offered to idols. He says, each meal builds a bond between the participants and the deity that is honored in the meal. 
I believe this is why Paul would say in chapter 6, when it came to sexual immorality, he was saying, listen, you are Christ's body. Why would you share that with a prostitute? He understands the nature of that relationship and the intimacy that is at hand there. Just if I were to come up and to shake someone's hand, we know that's a common gesture in our culture. But there's really not intimacy that is shared there, right? But you recognize for a couple on their wedding night, there is more than just a physical act that takes place. There is, a, there is a soul level intimacy. As scripture says that you become one flesh, there is an intimacy that takes place at that moment. And I think what Paul's trying to get into is say, listen, when we come to the Lord's table, when we share in the cup, when we break bread together, there is a vertical intimacy that happens there as we remember Christ and his death and his coming again and the communion that takes place. But not just vertical, I want you to see this. There's also a horizontal intimacy. Look at me in verse 17. Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body since all of us share one bread. Now, I think it's hard for us to grasp this in the culture in which we live, in which the Christian faith is, um, is accepted, affirmed, celebrated in some places, right? But I want you to imagine for a moment that we're living in a culture in a society, in a city where the Christian faith is outlawed. I want you to imagine that we live in a, in a community in which for someone to express faith in Christ, when you say yes to Jesus, you know that you are inviting your family to disown you. Some of you in this room, you may have even experienced that. And what happens in, in those types of cultures, in those types of moments, is that the people in this room become a lot more important than in our culture we're able to grasp. Because this becomes your family. This is your family. This is your eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul's saying, listen, the intimacy that happens when we come to the Lord's table together is we don't just come as individuals. We come as a family together. And no matter what my biological family may have said, I'm in this with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And no matter what's happening in my workplace because I'm trying to live out my faith and the challenges that are coming with that, I can come into this room and come to the Lord's table together and I'm in this together with other brothers and sisters in Christ that they're having challenges in the world, but we're in this together. Do you catch it? Paul's saying there's a, there a deep intimacy in taking the Lord's Supper together. And so for you in Corinth that think you can just eat this meat that you know has been honored to, given as a sacrifice to honor this idol, you have to understand there is something deeper at stake. He gives another example of it in verse 18 of the Israelites. We're not going to go into that for time's sake. It just says, listen, it's true of the Israelites. We look at the Old Testament that they would participate in these meals and their hearts became idolatrous. Let's look at the second reason. really I say second reason it's really just Paul clarifying the first but the second reason we'll say is this is that an idolatrous heart is a divided heart an idolatrous heart is a divided heart look at verse 19 what am I saying then man I wish the Bible had that question a lot more don't you help me understand Paul what you're thinking here what are you saying about this idea of using the Lord's Supper as a picture for us that there's a deeper intimacy at stake he goes on to say that food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. 
So again, I want us to track with Paul's thinking here. And if you've been with us in this journey through chapters 8 and 9, you, you, you can grasp what Paul's saying here. You may remember in chapter 8, when Paul was talking about this food to offer to idols, remember he said, listen, are idols anything? Do idols exist? No. I- idols are, are nothing. They're a figmentation. They're, they're the creation of, of humanity to try to fill that hole in their heart, to ascribe worship to something bigger than they are, but they are nothing. So he's assuming here that as he's writing this, that those in Corinth are going, wait a second, Paul just, he just told us that idols are nothing. And now he's saying that eating this food is actually worship to these idols, but I thought these idols were nothing. And he's thinking proactively. And so that's why he says here in verse 19, what am I saying? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or the idols? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that there is an actual validity to these false gods, these idols that are being worshiped. But what is he saying? That what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And here we hear the heart of Paul for these people that he loves. I do not want you to participate with demons. And Paul's talking about this issue with the church in Corinth and about there being a deeper intimacy at stake. He's telling them who that intimacy is with. And he says here, it's with the demonic. When you're participating in this, you're participating in this activity. And what you don't understand is even though you may not be proactively bowing down to this idol, by participating in this act of idolatry that's taking place, you are participating, you are at intimacy at a deeper level, and it is here with the demonic. We understand that there is nothing that Satan longs for more than to rob God of his rightful worship. There's nothing Satan wants more than to rob God of the worship that he deserves. And one of the way that he, ways that he does it is to fool people into believing that there is a better option for where your worship goes. Hear me. He did it in the Garden of Eden. He was doing it here in Corinth. And he still does it to this day in northeast Louisiana. As Paul's writing this, he undoubtedly has Deuteronomy chapter 32 in mind. We're not going to go into it. It's the song of Moses, but it is the background of Paul's argument here that he's making. And in that place, in the song of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we see this understanding of, let me just read briefly here from verse 16 and 17 of chapter 32. It's not going to be on the screen, you just have to listen, but Speaking of the people of Israel, it says they provoked God's jealousy with different gods. And they enraged God with detestable practices. And listen to what it says. They sacrificed to demons, not God, to gods they had not known, new gods that had just arrived, which your ancestors did not fear. It says there that in their worshiping of these false gods, they were were participating in the demonic. And in doing so, it was bringing God to a place of jealousy. Now, hear me. When we hear that word in our culture, we think insecurity. But let me tell you, God has never had an insecure day in his life. God's jealousy rises up because he knows he and he alone is worthy of our worship. And at the same time, he passionately loves you and wants what's absolutely best for you. And if someone came along to my kids and they tried to offer my kids something or to lead my kids into a way that I knew was not best for them, there would be jealousy that would rise up in this daddy right here. 
Why? Because I want what's best for my kids. And in God, knowing that he alone is deserving of worship, and at the same time in his passionate love for his people, there is a jealousy, a divine jealousy that rises up. And we see here Paul even addressing this, the very end of verse 22, when he says, are we stronger than he? It's a reference that we see back to 32 where his jealousy is rising up and that the people would lose their strength when God's judgment comes on them. But the entire time we're seeing this division of the heart. He says here, look at me in verse 21, 20, I'm sorry, verse 20. Sorry, let's go verse 21. 21. He says, you cannot, hear this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. We see here a divided heart. We see here an intimacy that has been divided. And he says, you can't do it. You can't live your life in such a way that you're taking the Lord's Supper and the intimacy that comes with that of proclaiming Christ's death and proclaiming who he is. And at the same time, living your life in such a way that it exhibits that your heart belongs to anything else. You can't say that Christ sits on the throne of your heart and at the same time dine with demons. You can't do it. Jesus said it this way, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he'll despise the other. And in this context, Jesus was talking about money. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. You see, an idolatrous heart is a divided heart. So what does this mean for us today? What's, what's our takeaway from this text today? Let me give you several things. First one is this, understand when we look at this text, Paul wasn't having to tell them to stop proactively worshiping this idol, right? The text doesn't say to this church in Corinth, stop going to the temple, stop offering sacrifices, stop bowing down, right? They weren't necessarily proactively doing this, but Paul was helping them understand that their participation in these meals was leading to sin. And so I would ask you today, Again, I, I don't believe that any of you are necessarily coming and bowing down to false idols. I don't think you necessarily have some little place in your house set up that you bow down to false idols. But let me ask you this. Are you participating in things in your life that are leading you to put something over the Lord in your life? Are there things in your life that, that you would just say, this is what I do. This is how our family, this is how we live our lives. This is the regular rhythm of society and culture, and this is what we do. And Paul would say, it's not just enough to consider what you do. You need to consider what's behind that. Are there areas in your life right now that if you really begin to evaluate, you would say, you know what, when I look at that thing, to me, in my mind, I just think it's not that big a deal. But when I really begin to think about it, what I find is that my participation in this is elevating this to a place that it is taking priority over the Lord in my life. Paul would say today, flee it. Now, I don't know what that fleeing is going to look like for you. But Paul would say, we, we need to consider that. The second question I would ask you today as we think through the application is this. Are you committed to flee when temptation arises? 
Are you committed to flee when temptation arises? Remember, Paul had said here that, listen, no temptation has overcome you, right? But he will provide a way out. But that wasn't enough. He said to flee. Are you willing to flee? The last question is this. Are you prepared to come to the Lord's table today? And your understanding, maybe for some of you, it's a new understanding of the significance of taking the bread and the cup and the intimacy level, the, the spiritual communion that takes place. Are you ready to take the Lord's Supper today? We've experienced, some of you, I say we've experienced, maybe you've experienced before. You take a girl out on a date. You think the date's going fine. You paid for the meal. You didn't spill anything on you while you were eating. You opened her door the whole time. You walk her to the door and you lean in for that kiss. And it gets real awkward, doesn't it? When she doesn't lean back in. And what you see in that moment is you believe that there is a chemistry there. There is innocence and intimacy there that you're ready for that moment. And she said, I ain't ready. And listen, I want to be clear. We're going to get to this down the road in chapter 12. But the Apostle Paul is very clear about not coming to the Lord's table flippantly. You don't just walk up to the Lord's table and take the bread and the cup and think you're good because you did some ritual exercise. No, there's a deeper intimacy at place. When we come to the table, we understand there is a vertical nature to it. There is a horizontal nature to it. So today, we're going to have that opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together. And I would ask you, are you dining with demons? Are there things in your life that have priority over the Lord right now at this moment? And today, before you come to the Lord's table, you need to honor the Lord by repenting of that, acknowledging it before him. To be clear with the Lord that your desire is that he would sit on the throne of your heart and nothing else. And as you come to this moment of intimacy and the bread and the cup, that you would come with a heart that is ready for that. You're ready to commune with the creator of the world. You are ready to commune with the one who gave everything for you. You are the one, to, you're, you're ready to commune with the one who has been faithful, faithful, faithful to you day after day after day. Are you ready to come to the Lord's table today? Knowing that it's not just vertical, but that it's horizontal. Can you truly say, as a part of God's family, for those that are part of First West, as a part of this local congregation, that man, there is unity in my heart and, and with, with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Or would you say today, listen, there's someone in my life, there's someone a part of our church body that, listen, I don't feel like I'm in a place of unity together. And that's the gift of this time together is that we understand, listen, we're called to all be one. We all stand under the banner that Jesus is Lord. And maybe today, instead of taking the bread or the cup, you just need to say, Lord, I'm not ready to take it because I need to make a phone call. Maybe today you need to get up and you need to go find someone in this room and say, listen, before I can take the bread and the cup, I need to ask for your forgiveness or I need to offer my forgiveness, whatever that looks like. And today I want to invite you to bow your head. said scripture is clear that we don't come to the Lord's table flippantly and today you've heard that this taking of the bread and taking of the cup it is more than just some ritual act that we participate in 
but it is a sharing in the finished work of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And some of you today, there's never been that moment in your life where you said yes to the Lord. When you look at your life, you would see a life that in a sense has been dining with demons since day one. Here's the great news today. No matter where you find yourself today, right now, you're invited to the Lord's table. And that invitation to the Lord's table doesn't come through getting things all back on track for a couple of weeks. But that coming to the Lord's table is the same invitation that was for all of us in here. It is by God's grace. It is his unmerited kindness towards us. It is about us putting our faith and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection, turning from our sin and turning towards him. And I wanna invite you right now in this moment. If you know there's never been a moment in your life where you said yes to Christ, that right now in this moment, you would say, Lord, I acknowledge the sin in my life. I acknowledge I've rebelled against you. And God, today I lay that before you. I acknowledge that it is wrong. And Jesus, today, I believe in your death, burial, resurrection. Come into my life. Change me. Make me a new person and help me to live for you the very best I know how. I want to worship you above all else. Maybe for today, and you're here in this moment, and you know you're a believer in Christ. But there's some things that have been in your life that they're sitting in the rightful throne that God deserves. And right now in this moment, you just need to confess that to him. Maybe you need to ask like the psalmist, God, would you search me? God, would you know my heart? Would you reveal anything in my life that's unpleasing to you? And then we would lay it down. Father, today as we come, we're thankful for the fresh reminder of the significance of the bread and the cup. We're thankful for the challenge, God, in our lives to consider or the things in our life that we're participating in that don't help us to rightfully worship you above all things, to examine our lives, to examine our passions, to examine our time, to examine where our money goes, to look at all those things, God. God, it's our desire not to have a divided heart, but to worship you above all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we hope, again, that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need, and I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104, and we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.